Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Woodburn Baptist Church. My name is Tim Harris. I am the pastor, and uh, delighted to welcome you, all of you in Cafe Worship. We love you so much. Thank you for being a part of our fellowship, a part of this worship service. Everybody, take your Bibles now. Open to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, in the middle of a sermon series entitled Stories Jesus Told. Today, let's take a look at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's a parable about prayer. It's a parable about worship. It's a story about your heart. In some of the news that you might have missed this past week, there is a website entitled beautifulpeople.com. There are over 700,000 members of beautifulpeople.com. It's primarily a dating website. This is where Casey and I met. I'm kidding. No. No. We probably couldn't get on beautifulpeople.com. They have over 700,000 members, but the way you get on beautifulpeople.com is you submit photographs, of course. They have to be actual photographs, not how you wish you looked, but how you look. And the present members, again, 700,000 members, they, they take 48 hours and they vote on whether you are beautiful enough to join uh, their ranks and be a part of beautifulpeople.com. If you're in, you're in, and I don't know what you do there. I'll, I'll never know what they do on beautifulpeople.com. Um, it is a dating website. They, they find mates, I guess. I, I, I don't know what else. But the funny thing is they rejected somebody lately. And it turns out the guy they rejected was kind of a computer nerd. Okay? You don't mess with computer nerds, you understand, when you are a website. <laughs> so uh, I, I like this guy. He may be ugly, but I really like this guy. Uh, he went back out and, and he hacked into the website and he added 30,000 ugly people. 30,000 ugly people got led into beautifulpeople.com. I mean, the beautiful people, they freaked out. The very fact that there were now ugly people on there, it nearly shut the thing down. So they started throwing them out. They set up a hotline for all the hurt feelings when people were, you know, kicked off beautifulpeople.com. It's, it's just amazing to think that something like this exists, right? Uh, it was also beautifulpeople.com made the news back around January because at that point they kicked out 5,000 members because they had gained weight over the holidays. And, and I quote the, the, the website founder who said they couldn't have fatties walking around in there. Okay, first off, you don't really walk around in a website, you understand, but, you under, but, but that, that, that was his point. Where does that even come from? How can such a, a website, 700,000 beautiful people, I mean, I don't really understand, but I do sort of understand because there's just this basic principle of human nature, and it is simply that there's nothing more fun than looking down on other people. I mean, I hesitate to say that, except it's just the truest thing I know how to say. There's fun in this. There's something very pleasurable about looking down on others. And while there for a moment, we sort of got to look down on the beautiful people of beautifulpeople.com, I'm saying that, that we all do this. It's sin. It's, it's a sign of the wickedness of our hearts. But yet, you just cannot deny there's nothing more fun than looking down on other people. Which is exactly why in this particular parable, go with me, Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Here's how the parable is introduced. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. The, the, the Greek word there that says scorned everyone else, well, what it literally says is, there, is that they, they thought of them as nobodies. 
So here's the thing. Jesus tells this particular parable to people who really think that they are somebody and they think everybody else is nobody. All right? So this is the context. But, but more specifically, Jesus tells this parable to some who have great confidence in their own righteousness. So righteousness is, in many ways, the point of this parable. What is righteousness? Somebody tell me real quickly. It's a church word. What is righteousness? Yeah, it always has to do with being right in relationship to God, in in right relationship with God. So when you hear that word righteousness, think in terms of being right with God. So Jesus tells this story to some who have great confidence in their rightness before God while they think of everybody else as a nobody. All right, here's the story. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus tells this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. Now stop. In Jesus' day, these are two very, very common characters and people had preconceived notions about who these men would have been. So when Jesus says two men go to the temple to pray, one's a Pharisee, one's a tax collector. Everybody thinks they know how this story's going to go. Now, you and I are a little bit, um, our position's different because we have, read the New Testament, and we're sort of accustomed to Pharisees being bad guys. But in Jesus's day, Pharisees were not considered bad guys. Pharisees were admired. Pharisees were respected. People really had a lot of admiration for the religion of the Pharisees. They were earnest at the temple. They were faithful in their prayers. They were rule followers. I'm telling you, as well as I know you people, you would like the Pharisees. They're your kind of people. So, so understand, when Jesus says a Pharisee, that this is a person usually thought of in a very, in a very high, high, high fashion in, in New Testament times. In the same way the tax collectors were despised, nobody likes tax collectors. They're typically dishonest. They are typically considered traitors for Rome. So, so understand, when, when, when Jesus says two men, it's a Pharisee and a tax collector, everybody thinks they know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. All right? So let's start again. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. For I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner and not the Pharisee returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing story. Two men go to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee. Let's start by talking about the Pharisee. There are many ways we could describe him, but I guess that the basic way to describe him is to say that he just thinks he's better. He just honestly thinks he's better. 
in the same kind of way that you and I sort of usually think that we're better. I mean, when it comes to us and other people, we're typically very, very keen in observing other people. And it's very difficult not to compare ourselves to other people, but our tendency is always to choose somebody that we can compare ourselves to to make ourselves better. We tend not to compare ourselves to people who would make us look worse because nobody wants to see themselves in that way. We like to cut, each, cut other people off at the knees so that we can put ourselves on stilts, you know? We, we like to find a way to think of other people as nobody so that we can be somebody. The Pharisee's like that. He thinks he's better. So when he comes to the temple to pray, it, it just begins to seep out in his, in his prayer. He goes to the temple and he prays these words, I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner. You believe that? I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner. I don't cheat. I don't sin. I don't commit adultery. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Isn't that amazing. Now, he's thanking God. He, he, he seems to be addressing God, but you'll notice that really God's not really the focus of anything for this man. He is himself the focus of, of everything. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner. I don't commit adultery. I don't cheat. I'm not like anybody else. And, it's kind of like going up to your mama and thanking her for having such a wonderful kid. You understand? That's what he's doing. I thank you, God. I mean, you think he's going to thank God for something, but really he uses his entire prayer just to congratulate himself. I thank you, God, that you made me so awesome. Understand? This is the way he prays. Now, does he recognize that? I would say he doesn't. He really thinks that he's talking to God. But if you look closely at the text, it really says he's praying to himself. He's really only praying to himself. This is all about himself. Now, we know some things about Pharisees in the ancient world, and we actually have some of the prayers that they, that they prayed, and they really did pray like this. I mean, they practiced praying like this. One of the Pharisees' prayers had three parts. It said, I thank you, God, that I was not born a Gentile. I thank you, God, that I was, God, that I was not born a fool. And I thank you, God, that I was not born a woman. Watch it. Thank you, God, that I was not born a Gentile, not born a fool, not born a woman. I mean, they would come before God and simply thank God for how extraordinary they were, how they weren't like other people. But you'll notice he's religious. And again, I remind you, most people in this day and age, they would have respected this man. They would have said amen to this prayer, that they understand him and they get him. And, and though he might have some faults, he's got so many good qualities that you sort of overlook his fault. Because maybe his only real fault is pride. I mean, maybe that's the only thing, but, but honestly, wouldn't you rather have a neighbor who's a little bit proud than a neighbor who commits adultery and steals and cheats and, and sins like the tax collector? I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, everybody's got to have something wrong with them, and if you've got to have something wrong, why not just be just a little bit proud? Well, because pride is a very serious sin. Take a look at this verse from, the, from Proverbs. It's, it's actually rather stunning and, and amazing. Proverbs uh, chapter 6, verse 16. Help me out, Chris. Proverbs chapter 6, it says this. There are six things the Lord hates. No, seven things he detests. Are you ready? Haughty eyes. Okay, the Hebrew word there means high. High eyes. In other words, eyes that look down. All right? 
So six things the Lord hates, and seven things he detests, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who sows discord in a family. Okay, so we're listing six things, no, seven things that God hates, and what's at the very top of the list? The very top of the list is high eyes, haughty eyes. In other words, looking down on other people is at the very top of the list of things that God hates. Looking down on other people is at the very top of the list of things God hates. So you can't for a moment think that that your tendency to be a little bit proud, you you can't for a moment think that that pride in your heart, that that that, that pleasure you take in looking down on others, you cannot for imagine think that that is not poison in your heart. It is at the very top of the list of things that God hates. God, God hates this. And, and that's amazing to think about. If you're going to make a list of things that God hates, I would think that the very top of that would be awful things. I mean, you and I would love to, to write that list out, and I promise you, we, we would put some things smack at the top of that list, but it probably wouldn't be looking down on other people. Take the list of things God hates, and looking down on other people is at the top of the list. I've said that there's great fun in it, and there is great fun in it. God God hates it. So the Pharisee already has this tendency, but but, but here's the other thing about it. that, That tendency to think that you're better actually begins to get worse if you add religion to it. And, and this is precisely the issue with the Pharisee here. You can help me, Chris. That, that tendency to think you're better, it just gets worse if you add religion. And, and this is where it gets so perverted and, and, and convoluted. Because he's a Pharisee. He's a religious man. And so for him, it's not just that he thinks he's better he has all of these religious practices, these, these religious habits at the temple, his praying and everything else. All of this just begins to fold into his tendency to think he's better. So, so now his, his pride has this amazing religious flavor to it. And, and that kind of pride, that kind of arrogance is very, very difficult to penetrate. It's very difficult for a person who thinks that they are better, and add to that religiously better, spiritually superior. It's very difficult to get that person to see who they truly are before God. Around Woodburn, we talk about the triple two challenge. It's a way to talk about commitment. People sometimes say, how do I start, Brother Tim? What, well, what's expected of me? What do I need to do? So, we talk about the triple two challenge. It's very simply, you spend two hours a week in worship, two hours a week in, in teaching or small group, and two hours a week serving, doing something for somebody other than yourself. It's two, two, and two. Two hours here, two hours there, two hours there, six hours. But, but the bottom line is that we're just trying to talk about where do you start? What should a, a life of commitment look like? And, so we say triple two, two hours in worship, and this is your first hour, and you'll spend another hour this week, I say, but, but, but that's the thing, triple two challenge, two hours here, two hours here, two hours here. The thing is, we've got people in this church who go three hours to worship, you know? You go Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, 
And then you're probably watching Joel Osteen on Tuesday or something. I mean, you're all up in this, you understand? And so when I say triple two challenge, two hours here, you're thinking to yourself, two hours? That's not nearly enough. That can't be enough. Because you're the come to church every time the door is open, and and I'm that person. Y'all understand, I'm here seven days. I'm here seven days a week, and there's a part of my heart that comes in here on Thursday and thinks, where are they? Where are they? There's just this incredible, delicious temptation when you're prideful and religious to sort of take all of your religious habits and then measure everybody else by them. And understand, when you get to draw the ruler, when you get to decide the standard, then you can measure people in a way where you always look good and they always look bad. And I'm telling you, this is something in which there's a great deal of fun. You're going to enjoy this because it's going to make you feel like somebody and make everybody else look like nobody. And that's a very difficult temptation to resist. Pharisee comes before God and he just starts to pray and he says, I thank you, God. I thank you that that, that I'm not like other people. I I love you and and I worship you and I fast and I tithe. Understand? It's it's, it's pride. It's sin. It's a very sick heart, but it has so much religion wrapped up in it that it's very difficult for him to understand what he's actually saying. It's It's religion. It's religion in which he has one eye on himself at all times, and he's got his other eye on other people. And this is what it's all about for him, one eye on himself, one eye on people. The problem with this is if that's your religion, you don't have an eye on God. You you see? You got an eye on people, an an eye on yourself, but you don't have an an eye for God. Therefore, God doesn't even factor into your spirituality. God doesn't even factor into your coming to church because it's not about God. Because if you put God in the equation, all of a sudden you can't be the highest. If you put God in the equation, you can't be the judge. And we've already established that there is great fun and advantage when you get to think of yourself as the judge. I fast, the Pharisee says. I fast and I I tithe, understand? And in every instance, I promise you he does. He's not lying. He says he fasts twice a week. Now, most Pharisees were expected to fast once a week. So this guy, whatever you ask him to do, he's going to double it. I mean, he's a sacrificial kind of man. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of of everything I have. Now, honestly, Pharisees weren't expected to tithe everything. but, But this particular Pharisee, I mean, he is meticulous in his religious habits. Whatever you ask him to do, he'll do that, and he'll do more. His religion is all about sacrifice. It's all about following the rules, and he will go above and beyond every single time. The problem is his religion has a lot of sacrifice, but it has no change. There's no transformation. There's nothing about his temple going. There's nothing about his rule following. There's nothing about his fasting or his tithing or his praying that ever for a moment has him consider the fact that his heart is not right before God. 
It's probably a bad sign when your religion involves a whole lot of sacrifice but involves no change on your part. No matter what kinds of religious things you do, if your attitude toward people is wrong, you can't be right with God. No matter what kind of religious things you do. Well, Brother Tim, you don't understand. I'm in the choir. Do you know how much Rod makes us practice? We're out there, I was out there on Thursday night, we're out there on Saturday night. This is the big performance weekend for our choir's Easter musical. You guys are amazing. And, and, I, and I know, man, you're in the choir, and, and you were here at 4.30 yesterday, and you left at 8 o'clock last night, and you sang your guts out, and today you're a horse, but you're going to eat cough drops all day, and you're going to do it again tonight. You're going to be here at 4.30, and you're going to sing. I'm in the choir, Brother Tim, and I sing. I, I sing. Don't you understand? I sing. You sing, but you don't get along with the entire alto section. Understand? You don't get along with any of the tenors. You think all of the basses are losers, and in your mind, this choir is all about you. In your mind, this choir is blessed to have you in your lovely voice. But you understand, your voice may be in tune, but your heart is out of tune. And as Jesus tells the story, you not see that Jesus never compares the religious habits of these two men. It's not a comparison of deeds. It's not about who fasts and who doesn't fast. Because I guarantee you the tax collector does not fast. And it's not about who ties and who doesn't tithe. The Pharisee ties more. He gives above and beyond. The tax collector may or may not tithe. We have no idea. Why doesn't the Scripture tell us if the tax collector tithes? Why doesn't the Scripture tell us if the tax collector is faithful in his church attendance? Because that would help us make some evaluations. Why doesn't the scripture tell us whether or not the tax collector uh, goes to R-rated movies or whether or not the tax collector, you know, uh, disciplines his children? Why Why don't we learn about any of these other things? Because apparently those things don't matter. Nearly as much as the attitude toward people. The Pharisee has this amazing pedigree of religious deeds and acts, but he has a rotten heart toward people. And no matter what else you do, no matter how you serve, no matter how religious you see yourself as, if your attitude toward people is wrong, you cannot be right toward God. You can't be right toward God. Remember, the topic is righteousness. If you are right with God, you will have a different attitude toward people. No matter what kinds of religious things you do, if your attitude toward people is wrong, you can't be right with God. That's hard. That's hard. Two men go to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. I don't cheat. I don't sin. I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance dared not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his chest in sorrow and said, Oh God, be merciful to me, 
I am a sinner. New Living Translation says, I am a sinner. What he actually says is, is strange. He says, be merciful to me. I am the sinner. Not a sinner. Understand? Not a sinner. I'm the sinner. Almost like you know, if you open up the Webster's Dictionary and looked up sinner, you see his picture. I am the sinner. Be merciful to me. Have, have mercy on me. The only thing that the tax collector asks for in his prayer is mercy. Now, what's that about? First off, what, what is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. I deserve this, but I, I don't get this. I get something else instead. So the tax collector asks for mercy. Please, God, don't give me what I deserve because I am the sinner. He doesn't even lift his eyes to heaven. Now, in Jesus' day, that was the standard posture for praying. Most everybody would look up to pray. I know we bow our heads, uh, but in Jesus' day, look, looking up would have been considered proper. But the Pharisee, the tax collector won't do that. He, he won't look up. The tax collector won't look up. It's as if he, he can't bear to be seen. He beats his chest in sorrow, which is something that, incidentally, only a woman would have done. So... so this is a sign of real desperation and incredible humiliation. Have mercy on me as a sinner. He only asks for one thing, and that's mercy. And he calls himself the sinner. The parable Jesus tells right before this is a parable on prayer. So it's interesting how these two parables go together. So at least to some degree, there is a lesson on prayer in this parable. And I think it's right here with the tax collector. It's this. Prayer requires the courage before God to say who you really are. And the sense to ask for what you really need. Prayer is not that complicated, but, but it's complicated because most of us don't have the courage before God to say who we really are. We're much more like the Pharisee. We like to come before God and congratulate him on, on, on what great children he has. We like to come before God and somehow never get around to saying who, it, who we really are, what it is that we're really like. If we were to have a prayer meeting and it's all about Thanksgiving, man, we could go all night long because you guys love to thank God for all the good things he's given you. But if we were to have a prayer meeting where we're going to confess sin and talk about all, all the things that we don't deserve, I'm telling you, it would be really hard to get that prayer meeting off the ground. We don't confess sin very well around here. And the fact that we don't confess sin ever makes me wonder if we even acknowledge it in, our, in the privacy of our own heart. Is there ever a moment before God when you recognize that you don't deserve any of his goodness? Is there ever any moment when you have the courage before God to say who you really are? I, I am the sinner. I, I'm the sinner. It's not like I'm a sinner among other sinners. It, 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 I, I'm the sinner. It's not about comparing myself to other people. It's comparing myself to, to God's standard. And before God's standard, I, I fall short. I, I'm the sinner. And God, I don't deserve anything good from you. I, I'm actually a sinner. And if I'm a sinner then what I have coming to me is, is punishment. It's, it, it's wrath, and God have mercy upon me. You have to have the courage before God to say who you really are and the sense to ask for what you really need. And what you really need is mercy. What you really, really need is mercy. See, the Pharisee's problem is he has all of these good things, but somehow he imagines that he deserves them. 
And because he feels entitled to God's blessing, because he thinks he deserves this, he's never going to understand how much grace he's received from God. And if you don't acknowledge or, or, or recognize your need for grace, and you can't begin to, to relate to it, but the tax collector comes before God knowing exactly who he is. I am the sinner and asking for the only thing that he really needs and that is mercy. God just have mercy upon me, the sinner. He beats his breast and can't even look up to the sky. All right? So, two men go up to the temple to pray. The, the, the second praise God be merciful to me. I, I'm a sinner. I tell you, this sinner and not the Pharisee Returned home justified before God. That word justified is the same word that we were talking about earlier. It, it's righteous. So justified means to be made righteous. So, so I tell you, the sinner and not the Pharisee returned home righteous before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Do, do you get how the story ends? Two men go to the temple to pray, but one man goes home absolutely changed. He's not the same as when he walked in, and it's not the one you think. It wasn't the one that was most religious. It wasn't the one who kept all the rules. It wasn't the one who put the fattest check in the offering. It was the man whose heart broke open before God. That man went home right with God. He wasn't right when he walked in, but he was right when he walked out. And the difference was humility. The difference was repentance. The difference was coming before God with the courage to say who you really are and ask for what you really need. And that man goes home different. He goes home justified. He, he, he goes home righteous. Because understand, righteousness isn't something you bring to God. I thank you, God, that I don't sin. I thank you, God, that I fast and that I pray. I thank you, God, that I don't commit adultery. I don't cheat. I'm not like everybody else. I thank you, God. You understand? That man thinks he's bringing righteousness to God. He thinks that it's about him. This story is being told to people who trust in their own righteousness. They just believe that God's going to be pleased with them because they're just so cute. They're just so good. And I'm telling you, there is nobody who has righteousness to bring to God. You're not that good. You can't possibly be good enough to bring something to God to impress him. You're the sinner, just like everybody else. Righteousness is something that God gives you because of Jesus. Romans chapter 3 verse 21 says this, Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with, say the words, undeserved kindness. Undeserved kindness. Who is it that doesn't deserve kindness? Everyone, because all have sinned, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. What? He declares it. It's one-sided. God just simply declares that we are righteous. We were not righteous, but God simply declares that we are. How does that happen? Does it happen because I just start trying my best and I try to be a better man, a better husband, I try to be more honest and a better neighbor? No. If I could do it without God, then it wouldn't involve any of this. You understand? I can't make myself righteous. I can't earn righteousness. God just simply declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ, Jesus, when Jesus freed us from the penalty of our sin. 
My problem is my sin. And I can't do anything about my sin, but Jesus has done everything for my sin. He forgives me. He removes my sin as far away as east is from the west. And because of what Jesus has done for me, God can simply now declare that I'm righteous. As righteous as Jesus himself, my sin is no longer an obstacle between me and God. This is the gospel. It's just what we mean when we talk about becoming a Christian. You recognize that you sin. You recognize that you are not right with God. You're not good enough. You're not sweet enough. You're not religious enough because goodness and sweetness and religion cannot save you. Only Jesus can save you. And the only way he can save you is if you will come before him with a broken and repentant heart and cry out for mercy. You come before him knowing that you need a savior, knowing that you need forgiveness, and you come before him and receive his mercy. And everyone who comes to him, the scripture says, he will never, ever turn away. It's a gift. Salvation is a gift. God's righteousness is a gift. But you have to want it. You have to know that you need it. You have to want Jesus. So the Pharisee comes before God, needing nothing, asking for nothing, just congratulating God on what a good man he is. It's strange when you think about that kind of prayer. The tax collector's different. He doesn't even look up to heaven. He doesn't even want to be seen. Just beats his breast in sorrow and says, God, have mercy, mercy, mercy. I'm the sinner. And that man goes home different. I know that I'm talking to a lot of religious people. I, I, I know you folks. And in a lot of ways, it is my preaching, it is my example, it's my pressure that makes you follow all these religious rules. It brings you here. When I see you out at Steak and Shake, you apologize for not coming to church last Sunday. I mean, I know. But hear what I'm saying. All of those religious habits, the coming to church, the serving, the teaching, the singing in the choir, all of that, it doesn't add up to salvation. It doesn't add up to anything, and it's not necessarily a good sign of anything either. It's, it's always what's inside that matters to God. It's the attitude of the heart. This is a parable about two men, and we're not comparing their religious records. We're comparing hearts. And the man who was not right with God was the man whose heart was not right with people. So before you do anything else, ask yourself, what is your attitude toward people? Does your religion, this coming to church that you're doing every Sunday after Sunday and listen to me preach, God help you, all of this that you do, is it making your heart any more like Christ? Are you becoming more likely to forgive people? Are you becoming more patient with people? 
Are we beginning to reflect the fruit of the Spirit that Scripture talks about? Are we becoming more loving, more, more patient, more forgiving, more gentle? All of this that you, that you do that you call Christianity, is it making you any more like Christ? Because if it's not, that's a really bad sign for your religion. Something's not right. And I would want you to consider that it's your heart that's not right. Who is it that's on the list of your, I'm glad I'm not like them people? You understand? Who is it that's on that list of people that you're so glad you're not like? Who is it that for you is really easy to look down on? The the people that you find it sort of enjoyable to feel superior to? Who's on that list of people that you're glad you're not like? Because that tendency to think so much of yourself and look down on others, that, that, that is at the top of the list of things God hates. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you, you came to the temple, you came to church, and, and came before God and went home with something different about your heart? You, you came in one way and you left another way altogether. When's the last time that you're praying, you're singing, you're worship? When's the last time you went home changed? Because maybe that's the most important thing of all. There's supposed to be a change in your heart. The point of the parable is today could be that day for you. This could be a day when you come in and you recognize that you need to change. And you come before God and you have the courage to say who you really are and the sense to ask for what you really need. And you go home different. You could leave this place right with God for the first time in your life. But but first, you have to understand the truth. Before God can change you, you have to understand the, the tragic reality of your life. And that is just simply, you need to change. Something has to change. Pray with me. Before the end of this day, Lord Jesus, there will be hundreds of people who will come into this temple to pray. Some will do so with hearts full of pride. We feel good about the way that we are so faithful that we're here Sunday after Sunday. We feel good about the way that we're dressed. We feel good about the way we can sing and know all the words. We feel good about the way that we can look at others and see that they don't quite get it like we get it. We, we can feel good about the way we, we look over and can begin to feel superior We feel good about the way, Lord, that we know our way around this building. We know our way through the Bible. We know our way. We feel good about the way we go to work tomorrow and we can hear what other people did with their weekend. And we were at church and we were with our family and we feel good about that. We we feel so good, Lord, that we begin to take a lot of confidence in what we consider our own rightness, righteousness. We 
We feel so good about ourselves, Lord, that we rarely come before you in such a way where we cry out in shame or, or in need of mercy. We, we hardly think of ourselves as people in need of mercy. We come before you, Lord, with a long list of things we want, but mercy's rarely at the top of our list. Because, Lord God, we don't understand who we are and we don't really understand what we need. And we certainly don't understand what we deserve. Lord Jesus, I pray that today that we could truly come before you with broken and repentant hearts, that we would be willing to come exactly as we are with no mask and no false pride and no self-delusions, Lord. We're sinners in desperate need of a Savior, Lord Jesus, and you are such a wonderful Savior. Have mercy on us. Mercy. And then Jesus, once we have been the recipients of such undeserved kindness, such mercy, would you make it in our hearts so that we would have mercy on other people? Would you make it in our hearts where we could be kind to people where they deserve kindness or not? Would, would you do such a number on our hearts, Lord Jesus, that we learn to love like you love? Lord, would you make it so that we don't have that inner critic that constantly runs people down, that constantly thinks it whether we say it or not? Would you just make our hearts pure and would you make it so that we could just love people and accept people? And not always have to think of ourselves as better. Lord, we're not worthy. We're not better. But you, oh God, are worthy. We come before you, Lord. We hesitate even to look up toward you. We simply recognize that we're the sinners. Desperate need of mercy. Thank you for loving us as we are. For showing us mercy. For declaring that we're right with you. This is a sign of your grace and not a sign of our goodness, Lord. So may we forever praise and thank you for what Jesus has done for us. We pray in his precious name.